Welcome to the Collide Podcast. We're a growing community of everyday chicks colliding with Jesus in our mess, our pain, our joy, and our stories. We value showing up as we truly are, so that's what you'll find here. Walls and masks being torn down so that we can allow Jesus to meet us where we truly are and hear about other women doing the same. We can't wait to collide with you. Grief is weird. It's just so messy and it feels embarrassing. Like I just remembered feeling embarrassed about grief for so long. Just like, ugh, I just don't want to be sad. And I, you know, I would just burst out crying at weird times. And that's just, that's just how it is. Hey guys, welcome to the Clyde Podcast. I'm Willow Weston, the founder and director of Clyde, and I'm super excited to have my friend Nikki Lang on the podcast today. Nikki is the author of the blog, Everybody Dies, Thoughts on Being Alive. You should check it out. She often writes about grief and how it intersects with faith. And Nikki describes herself as a woman, a daughter, a sister, an orphan, a wife, a mother, a neighbor, a friend, a teacher, a student, a banjo player, a singer, a pianist, a painter, a volleyballer, a runner, biker, hiker, climber, reader, cook, gardener, ecologist, plant geek, lover, maker, feeler, writer, human. So we are going to spend time with all that she is today. Nikki, thank you for hanging out on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. I love that list of words. Hmm. Yeah, I it made me feel a little emotional when you read it. It's like, oh, I am all those things. You know how you your life sort of gets pieced apart and you you forget pieces of who you are when it gets lost in the shuffle, you know? So it was I should put that list up somewhere so I remember. Yeah, <laughs> on your mirror in your bathroom. Band yeah. player really stands out to me. How did that oh, yeah. come to be? Yeah, that's funny. Um, well, the thing about that list is that I'm not an expert at really any of those things. I just I just do a lot of things, I think. Um, yeah, but the banjo playing sort of I don't I've been playing for I guess 20 years already, but I'm not good. I'm I'm okay, but yeah. It reminds me of growing up, my mom and her friends would go out and party and mm. I'd be asleep and they'd come home and like one in the morning, they all tried to teach themselves how to play musical instruments. So you had a <laughs> right, drunk music festival in my house on a school night. The banjo, there oh. was the harmonica, the mandolin, the violin, the saxophone, the trumpet, the trombone. I mean, you name it. It's the most painful noise. I am That's so glad terrible. you have been here for 20 years. <laughs> you have so many interests and talents. So it leaves me with a million questions. And I want to start with you being an amazing artist. Oh. I don't know that you would call yourself that, but I would. And I first heard about you when you had a business called found and you were making these gorgeous leather goods. And in my city, women were just googly eye over it, over these, these products. And they were drooling like, Oh, have you, have you seen the latest, you know, found purse? And you've since closed down found and now you're writing and doing a ton of painting. I mean, I, I just think what talent don't you have when I read that list and I think of all the things that you've done. I'm curious if you were to rewind back, what was the first moment that you knew you were an artist? Hmm. Well, I always have liked to make things. Um, my mom had a sewing machine and so I was always making like Barbie pillows or uh, <laughs> cutting up her, her catalogs to make cards. You know, I just loved, I loved making. I think there's something about making something out of nothing that has always been a real place of solace for me. Um, so I think I always knew that, but art was never something in my family that was encouraged as a career. Um, in high school, I know for a bit, I, I was toying with going to art school and they just sort of laughed at that. You know, I brought home the brochures and they're like, oh, that's really lovely, but you know, let's get a real job. So that was never, that was never looked at as a career. And it's funny as my, as my path has gone and I've, I've lost my family and sort of those voices that told me that that wasn't a career, that that's what I've become. So mm -hmm. it's been a journey. That's so interesting. And I love that you described that you love making something out of nothing. Do you have some favorite things you've made out of nothing? 
Oh man. I mean, found the whole business was called found because I literally found all the materials that I used to create things. So I was going to junk stores and the Goodwill bins, and I was looking for, you know, leather jackets and I would go to thrift stores and buy thread. I was even buying thread at thrift stores and I would take zippers off of things. So I think there was something that I just found really beautiful about taking an old thing and making a new thing out of it. That's really cool. For all the women who've been crying since you closed down Found, <laughs> why did you decide to change your calling and say goodbye to Found and say hello to starting a blog and writing and painting? Yeah, that's a good question. It was a hard decision. I, I really labored over that decision because it was great to create. Again, the business was creating something out of nothing because I have no business experience. All of my education is in the sciences. Um, and I just started making and learned everything on my feet uh, and and started this business. And I did it for almost 10 years. And when I closed, I had a couple of employees. And the reason I decided to quit, it was it was hard work. It was small business in general is really hard work, but leather goods in particular is really hard on the body. And so I was getting physically tired. And I also realized that the higher, the further you go in business, the less you are connected to the actual product. And what I love is the making, but what I was doing was managing and I didn't want to be a manager anymore. So it just felt like a good time to, to try something new. Mm -hmm. It's interesting how you say that because I can resonate and I think so many people can where it's almost like the higher, um, the higher you go, you said in management or leading a business, but I also think when you go about starting something and it's successful, mm. you get further and further away from maybe the reason you went into it in the first place. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think about that all the time at Collide. Like, oh yeah. my, I didn't get into this to do employer reviews and um, manage budgets and fundraise, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I didn't get into ministry for those things, but the the bigger it becomes, the more you're doing those things because they become necessity. So it's interesting. You got further and further away from your love of and here you made this change, saying goodbye and like letting people um, go kind of like they lost their jobs feels like a really big decision. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it was an identity shift for me, right? Because I had become that, that was a big piece of my identity. People knew that's what I did. And then suddenly going to, you know, you imagine being at a cocktail party and people saying, well, what do you do? And it's like, what do I do? You know, I kind of do, I do a lot of things, you know, and it always sort of boiled down to, well, I'm a mom, you know, I have kids. And so I just think identity is such an interesting thing, you know, where we find our value. Is it in what we do? No, but I think our culture, our culture says that that that's a big piece of it. So I really had to wrestle with that and come to terms with the fact that I was just on a different journey than a lot of people are. You know, a lot of people my age are have careers that they've been doing for 20 years already. And I just I just don't have that. I'm on a different different path, but it's been great. Yeah, I love, though, that you had the bravery to let go of something good. Hmm. and hmm. grab on to something else that's really, hmm. cool, you know, and now you're putting out your work. In fact, I went to uh, one of your recent art shows and was mesmerized by your work. And I'm just curious if you ever feel scared of being so vulnerable and sharing your work, both your writing and your painting and putting it out in the world. Hmm. Yeah, I will say that it's, it's, a lot easier to share my painting than my writing. There's something about putting your words out into the the world that just feels so much more vulnerable than a painting. You know, you feel like people can have their opinions about painting, um, but writing just feels a little more soul bearing, you know? So it's been harder for me to put my work out there and to identify as a writer, but uh, I'm getting better. I'm starting to combine the two. I would like to combine the two um, to, to write and to paint on similar themes and maybe pull some of that together. Mm, that sounds super cool. Can't wait to see what that looks like. Yeah. When you think about other women who feel like they have this innate 
um, gift inside of them that they want to share with the world, but they're so afraid that it almost feels like getting naked, like putting right. yourself out there. What's your best advice for them as they consider being brave and doing it? Oh, just do it. I mean, life is so short and you are the only one that is you. You are the only one that can be you. Um, one of my favorite books on that topic is Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert. Um, she just writes about how your creative spark is unique to you. And if you have something to give to the world, you're doing the rest of us a disservice by not putting it out there. You know, even like put your ego aside. We're all, we're so full of ego, right? Every, every minute of our day, sometimes it feels like is governed by our ego, but you just, we just got to let that go. I feel like the older I get, the easier that is, you know, as I, I feel like I'm entering the second half of life where it just feels like our time is limited. You know, you got to do, you got to do it while you can. Mm -hmm. When you talk about that, putting your ego aside, I mean, what does it look like for you to put aside your ego and enter your paintings into this, you know, art exhibit? How do you measure um, success of that with your ego aside? Like, how do you feel good about it without going into like all the measuring sticks that either like, um, you look forward to up your ego or you look forward to make you feel like, oh, I should never do this again. Oh, it's hard. <laughs> it's so hard. And every time I sit down at the canvas or at the panel, it just, it feels like I'm starting at square one. You know, it just feels like I, I, I'm starting all over again because I'm not really trained. I don't have an education in art. Uh, it just feels like, like it's, I'm just guessing at it every time, but it, it turns out. And I feel like I've gotten, I've gotten reception, but I think people respond to my work because I paint the places I love and I paint what I see. And I think other people see that too. You know, it's sort of sharing this vision of um, this is what I see and this is what I love. And I don't know, it seems to speak to people. So I think I've been lucky that people have responded to it because I think if they hadn't, it's that much harder to do it again, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Totally true. You know, you have talked to me, we've gone on a few walks and you have shared about a big project you're working on. You're, you're writing a book, which is a huge feat. Can you invite us into what it's about and what the processes look like for you? Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's been a process for sure. I've been working on it for about three years. Um, but I would say it's been working on me for, for a lot longer than that. You know, I, um, I mentioned that I lost my family and that was, that's a pretty, I lost, I lost my sister when I was, uh, 15, she was 17. She had a long journey with leukemia and, um, then I lost my dad to liver cancer in 2006. And then six weeks later, my mom, sort of surprisingly passed away. Um, she had had MS for my whole life. And so um, after my dad passed away, who was her caregiver, she just kind of, I think she just kind of let go and gave up the ghost a little bit. And so I lost them in, in 2006. And so I had a big shift. You know, I was on this, this track. I was um, training to be a plant ecologist and was studying fire ecology and um, getting my master's in forestry at UW. And when that, when I lost them, it just forced me to sort of reevaluate everything. You know, as you can imagine, it just is, is a huge thing to grapple with. And, and since then it's been a journey of trying to figure out how to, how to grieve, um, how to keep the faith, if I should keep the faith, um, who God is, why God took my family, um, you know, grappling with those big questions of life and death. And so finally, I mean, it's been, it's been what, 13, 14 years now. And I finally feel able to, to write about it, you know, and to make some sense of it. And um, I mean, luckily grief has come a long way, even, you know, like grief groups that exist. There's a lot of really great online grief groups, modern loss, um, what's your grief? There's just all kinds of support available for people who, who are losing people. And I just, I couldn't find that. I don't know if it wasn't there. Um, or if I just felt like I didn't need it, you know, like for a long time, I just tried to muscle my way through those huge losses, but they were just, 
I mean, I developed incredible anxiety, um, which is typical. That's actually very typical, especially with unprocessed grief. Your body keeps the score. You know, your body knows that you need to grieve. You need to slow down. You need to, to mentally process what it means to lose your most important people. So that's what the book's about. Um, and I hope, I hope that it's, there's a quote that's right by my writing desk. That's something about, it's an Emily McDowell quote that says something like, um, our experience, uh, alchemizes into someone else's medicine. That's a very loose paraphrase, but it just, I think that, that what I'm learning is that sharing our griefs and sharing our experiences is really how you heal, you know, that we need community to heal. So mm -hmm. I want to talk to you for a while about grief because I think there's so much we can learn from you. I mean, when I listen to your story, when I hear you refer to yourself as an orphan and the insurmountable loss of losing your sister and both of your parents, I mean, I just... I don't know what that's like. And I wonder if you had moments where you just felt like God abandoned you without all your people here to like do life on earth. Yeah. Yeah, I did. And for a long time, I carried that as anger. You know, I was really, I was really angry at God and I didn't want to live this life without my family, you know, and it took me a long time to understand that it was okay to be angry. You know, I think I felt a lot of guilt around that anger. And then I, I was sitting in a church service one time with a friend of mine in Boise, Idaho, and the priest was giving a prayer and the whole sermon was about forgiveness and the priest said something about forgiving God. And I was just floored. I just thought it's never occurred to me that God is someone who, whom I could forgive, you know, for taking my, even though it wasn't like, it, it wasn't like God had delivered harm on me, but just to resolve those feelings of anger, I had to just move on from that. And it was a similar process to, to forgiveness. So I feel like I'm not angry anymore about it. Um, I'm letting myself just be sad when I'm sad about it. And I think that that's something that our culture is not good at. I think our culture honors anger more than they honor sadness. You know, it's, it's undignified to cry all the time, you know, or it's, especially for men, I think, you know, it, it's just not okay to be sad, but, but life is sad. You know, there's sad things that happen and, so I've just, I've tried, I've tried to engage the sadness and to let myself be sad when I, when I feel it. What do you think that is? Because I, I see in Christian culture, especially, it's almost like there's this lie that's told that you ought not be sad if you have God. And, uh, it really messes with people. I, I, remember, and I've shared this before, I think on the podcast, but I was speaking at a retreat and this girl came up to me after the first session, probably in her early thirties. And she was crying and she was like, I don't know what I, why I'm crying. I, I believe in God. I have God. And, um, you know, we, something happened and we couldn't carry out a conversation. Then the next morning after the session, you know, it was the same thing by Saturday night of this retreat. I finally had a moment to be able to say, tell me what happened. Cause she said, this thing happened 10 years ago and I'm still crying about it. And I don't know why I'm crying. I shouldn't be crying. My life should be good. Right. And I was like, what happened to you? And she goes into this tragic story about, um, her fiance that she broke up with committing suicide. And she was made to feel like she ought to fast forward her sadness and get straight to wholeness. And I feel like that's the myth in Christianity is like, oh no, like if you ask Jesus into your heart and you believe these things, then you should be good. You should be healed. And I know even for me with the pain that I've experienced in my life, all growing up in my adult life, um, 
I'm still not whole. And I've been walking with Jesus since I was 21 now. I'm 47. Like, I'm still needing him to show up and heal me so many spaces of my life. And so what do you think that is that we're trying to get away from sadness and get right to the happy part? Because we, because sadness is hard and we're Americans and we shouldn't have to be sad, right? Like we should, we're a fix it culture. You know, we just want to get right to all the good stuff. But I think what we don't realize is that there's good and sadness too. And we can hold our sadness and our joy together. You know, like I'll never not be sad that my parents and my sister are gone. But also I have two little boys and a great husband and I have this beautiful life. So I think we have to get better at holding two things to be true at the same time. You know, we have to be okay with being sad and being joyful at the same time. I think we just can't move through the sadness too fast. You know, there's a great book um, by Megan Devine that's called It's Okay That You're Not Okay. It's one of the best books I've ever read on grief. And she just came out with a, with a journal that's called How to, Fix, How, to, How to Carry What Can't Be Fixed. And I just think it's, it's such a profound idea that there just are things that we carry, you know, that, that I don't want to put down my grief. I think that was, that was the hardest thing for me is that people wanted me to just get over it and getting over it meant forgetting it. And I just could, I could never forget having a family. Do you feel like it's almost like an affront to the people that you've lost when people are expecting you to move on and get over it? Does it almost feel like like you can't take that from me. Like you, you can't take my sadness for the people I love most away from me because I'm sad because I love them so much. Like, is it almost like an offense to the people that you're still trying to like hold close to? Totally. Cause it's your last connection to them. You know, your grief is your grief. I think I've heard it said that grief is love continuing. You know, like it's the last, it's the last piece that you have of those people. So for the grief to be gone means that, that your people are gone and, and they're not, they're always going to be a part of you. You're always going to carry them forward. Mm -hmm. That's so interesting because there's so many ways to do grief. There's no one right way. And, you know, we learn so much from Kubler-Ross's kind of five stages and, you know, denial, anger, like all, all of those depression, bargaining acceptance, but you don't move through them linearly and you revisit a lot of them at different times. But there's something really interesting about also not identifying as like the sad person who can't also hold celebration or joy or gratitude. Like you're, you're talking about holding two things at the same time. This last weekend, I saw a woman have to do that in the most literal way. We're, we're sitting at our son's graduation from high school and our sons have known each other since elementary school. And she's been caretaking her dying mom who had hospice come in in the last two weeks. And she made a choice to go to her son's graduation, but that was a very difficult choice for her to leave the bedside of her mother. She's sitting there at graduation and she gets a text on her phone that her mother passed away in the middle of her son's high school graduation. And it struck me that she's being literally. Like it, it's not even a season. It's a moment where her son is being handed his diploma at the same time that she's hearing that her mother has passed and to hold both things. What does that require of someone to hold both and not just one? Oh, it requires space. You know, it requires our, our culture to make room for that, you know, to not say, well, you're, you have to be happy right now because you're, you're your son is graduating, you know, or you have to be sad because that, and that's another thing is that people want to force emotion. You know, they want to tell you, they, they want to say, um, well, look at the bright side, look at this thing. And, it, and, and we just need to get past that. We need to have the capacity to make space for all that to exist, you know, and, and we just need to practice. I think it just takes practice, it takes being intentional about 
What are some of the things that you personally have experienced or you've seen other people do, um, especially in Christian culture and circles, that is extremely harmful when someone is grieving? Hmm. Well, I think for me, well, as you were talking about the stages of grief, I just it just brought up a couple of things. And um, David Kessler has written a book kind of adding to that. He was one of her... Um, he was her protege and then they kind of became colleagues and then he's carried on. But he, he has, um, he has written a book called meaning making, which has sort of become the, another stage of grief. Claire Bidwell Smith has also written about anxiety as being a stage of grief, but which I have found to be incredibly true, (laughs) true, but the whole meaning making piece, I think that there's a big push in Christian culture to make meaning out of every sad thing that happens. And sometimes I just would feel like saying, it's just sad. Like it doesn't have to mean something. It doesn't have to mean that, you know, they, they're in a better place or that their suffering was, was all turned into good or that, you know, there was anything okay about my sister dying when she was 17, you know, like it just is sad and we have to be okay with their just being sad things in life and not having to put a cherry on top of everything. Hey there, friends. We just wanted to pop in here real quick to let you know that if you're enjoying the content in this episode, we think you would also love our free digital download, Getting Unstuck. We know that so many women desire a life free from bitterness, regret, monotony, or roadblocks, yet it feels like you continue to be bogged down by comparison, unrealized dreams, and difficult relationships. We all get stuck, but not everyone engages with the reflective exercises it takes to find freedom from those ruts. In this digital download, Getting Unstuck, we walk you through discerning the 10 most common ways you may be feeling stuck in life, and then offer guided reflections, scriptures, and more to help you find freedom and unleash you into the life you desire. Once again, this resource is free and it's available now on our website when you search Getting Unstuck at WeCollide.net. Happy colliding. What what has helped you, Nikki? What are what are some of the ways that in this just insurmountable loss, all this experience that you have had community or I don't know, supernatural divine Jesus moments or things people have done that have actually been healing and helpful for you that we can learn from. Yeah. Um, well, as far as like what I've done in my healing journey, I feel like, like reconnecting to my own body has been a huge thing. Like one thing um, that happened for me, I mean, obviously when people die that you're close to, you recognize your mortality unlike ever before, you know, it's like, oh yeah, people die, you know, and we, we want to ignore that. I think we live most days kind of ignoring that. And for me, um, that anxiety that I talked about became very physical and um, just, I'll just tell you a little story. Just two nights ago, I had this terrible panic attack after having, not having had one for a long time. I just had a bad dream and, and it just kind of spiraled. I would just get in these, in these anxiety spirals where it just, I would, I would get to this moment and I realized I, so for me, it often happens at night because I feel like the darkness brings on like an actual darkness, you know, and I got out of bed and, you know, just kind of walked around and tried to reconnect with my body. But this dream was still, I don't, I can't even explain what it was about, but it just brought on this feeling of despair. And I've just had a lot of fear around the end of life, you know, and what it all means. And as far as like heaven and hell, that just means a totally different thing than it meant before. You know, I, I actually don't, I don't know what happens when we die, you know, and I wrestle with that. I want to have hope. And what I realized 
the other night I, I just came downstairs and I sat there for a while and I thought, okay, I have options. Cause when you have a panic attack, I don't know if you've ever had a panic attack, but um, you feel like you're having a heart attack. You feel like you're dying. At least I do. It might be different for other people, but um, so I just had to try and like calm my, my system down. And I thought, okay, I, I could take a Xanax, which I have, which I've gotten a prescription for, for moments such as these, or I could, you know, get up and, you know, do a shot of whiskey or something, you know, like these things that our culture has taught us to medicate with, you know, I could just numb out from this. And I sat down in a chair and I reached over next to me and I thought, you know, I, I should read the Bible. You know, I thought I'm a Christian. I should, I should read the Bible, right? Because that's what a Christian should do. And, um, and I did, I, I had a, I don't know if you're familiar with Alabaster makes these really beautiful illustrated um, books of the Bible. And I just happened to have the Psalms right there. And I pulled the Psalms out and I just opened it up to a page. You know, people often say that I just let the Bible fall open and, and it opened to Psalm 40. Um, you know, I, that U2 song just came into my head. You know, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined and heard my cry. And, you know, Willow, I'm not a person that, that's not my usual go-to. My usual go-to would be like the easy fix. It would be, you know, have a glass of wine, have a Xanax, you know, like do the thing that gets it over quickly. But as I read those words, I, it wasn't so much that I felt the presence of God. You know, that's what you want to feel. And that's what you, you sort of look for in those moments. And, and I think that it's been hard for me because I, that hasn't been my experience of God. But what I felt when I was reading those words is I felt this cloud of witnesses that had come before me and had also read those words. You know, that that this scripture is holy and sacred for a reason because we're all humans. We are all humans that are broken. And in that moment, I had a choice between hope and despair. You know, like when you're in that blackest place, when you just think, I don't know even what life is about. I can choose to go down that dark, dark hole and drop down into that, which is scary and horrible, or I can choose to have hope. You know, it's a choice. Faith isn't always this thing that you're convinced of, you know, like my science brain has such a hard time with a lot of our faith stuff. But in that moment, it was just, I had to make that choice. I had to say, these are the tools that people I love have passed down to me. And, and like in thinking about what I want to pass on to my kids about my faith, it's like, I want to give them this tool of hope. You know, I want them when they are in the depths of despair, that they can pick it up. And with like generations of people behind us and, and ahead of us, we'll read this and, and know that they're not alone, you know? Not even like that they have a God, that there is a God that loves us, that we as humans can reach out to. And he, and, and God is there, mm -hmm. but also this cloud of this community of, of humans is also here. Like we're not alone. Like we're cosmically just not alone. Mm. You know, as we're having this conversation, we're not in the same room because we're having it during COVID and I'm looking at you in your house. You have, you know, I've seen the plant that kind of travels all across the, the ceiling and into your chandelier. And I see your coffee maker and your, your couch and your chair. And I feel like you just invited us into like this really real moment that you had in your home that I think a lot of us have but we don't talk about it. You know, your story of experiencing the loss of your family in really makes death real. Like it really, for you, it makes sense that you would have so much anxiety because death has been right in front of your face. I mean, you can't escape it. It's, it's, it's such a reality to your story. And so of course that's going to, 
bring up so many questions about the meaning of life and what happens after life and anxiety around your life and your family, your kids' lives and all that stuff. Like it just makes so much sense. And I think the the anxiety and in those moments, you're just being so, I just appreciate how real you're being about it because I think there's a lot of us pacing our houses in the middle of the night, having a scary, dark, despairing dream and thinking, do we drink wine or pop a Xanax to make it go away? But I'm not sure that it really goes away by doing that. And the idea that you're saying like, choose hope, you know, I, I think about the, speaking of sacred words in the old Testament about the idea of like, on this day, you can choose life or you can choose death, choose life. Like, yes, like we have to keep waking up and choosing hope and choosing faith and choosing life if faced with a choice. Right. And so I just love like that you invited us into your home and into that moment, because I think a lot of us are having it and we're just not talking about what we're doing in those moments. Uh Yeah. Yeah, I think we're a culture of not talking about things. You know, we in in our social media culture, everyone wants to be the strong one, and you know, this mm-hmm. we just are such an image focused culture. And I think we'd all be a lot better off if we just talked about what's hard, and and especially with faith, like asking questions about faith, you know, and not being afraid to engage the hard things or the weird things or the things we just actually don't agree with. You know, I think we just need to talk about it. Like God is big enough to handle our questions. Mm -hmm. We just have to to engage them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's funny. It's almost like we think there's like this like shelf life on our faith where it expires in the sense that you have by now, you should have figured out everything by this date. And if you don't have it all figured out by now, that means somehow you're a bad Christian. You're a, what? You have questions? What? You're doubting? You're, you're struggling with something in, in the Bible. You, you had the first, you know, two years to figure that out when you first walked with Jesus, but you can't be doing that 20 years in, you know, somehow shame around questions and doubt. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just started a great book, um, by, Brian McLaren called Faith After Doubt. And he talks about how doubt is the thing that that allows us to grow. It's what allows new discoveries to be made. You know, without doubt, we would be a totally stagnant culture. You know, and that's the beauty of the Bible is that it was written a long, long time ago. And it's the kind of thing that you have to come back to at different places in your life. You know, it's this idea that it's to be meditated on. It's not going to mean the same thing every time you read it. It's in fact, it shouldn't, you know? Well, faith is being uh, sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. There's never, uh, I, I think doubt lives with faith. That doubt, faith, faith requires or doubt requires faith. It's like, you're never like, I'm a hundred percent certain. I know all the things like God is a very mysterious God. And on this side of meeting him face to face, at least for me, I don't know that I'm going to know all the things, but we really pose like we do. I'm, I'm curious because you've learned so much about what not to do, what to do. And and certainly I imagine you live in community with people when people in your life are steeped in grief. What's your, what's your goal as far as like what kind of presence do you try to bring into their grief when you're with them well i think mostly i don't i just try not to make light of it i try not to um say well at least whatever um and i just try and show up you know like people you, you, the worst thing to do is to say well just call me if you need anything you know, because they're never going to reach out. They're never going to call you and say, Hey, I'm really sad. Can you bring me dinner? Just bring them dinner, you know, show up with, with flowers, show up with a cup of coffee, you know, just like do the thing, do the thing that seems extra or seems silly. Um, just, just put your, put your ego and your feelings and your weirdness aside and just, just show up even if it's awkward, 
even if they will send you away. I was just talking to a friend of mine who had lost her husband and we were talking about how the same thing on a different day can be either right or wrong. You know, like one day you might want company, the next day you might not want company. And that's okay. That's just the nature of grief. Mm -hmm. So as a friend of a grieving person, just let that be okay. Let it be confusing. Let it, let it, let them yell at you. You know, maybe they need to just yell at you. Maybe they need to be mad about, about death and they take it out on you. Just, just be their friend in that moment. You just, just let them because they'll come around and they'll thank you for it. You know, you just, grief is weird. It's just so messy and it feels embarrassing. Like I just remembered feeling embarrassed about grief for so long. Just like, oh, I just don't want to be sad. I, you know, I would just burst out crying at weird times. And that's just, it's just how it is. Mm. I, I'm curious how you stay connected to your family that passed away. Hmm. Oh, that's a great question. I didn't for a long time. For a long time, I just, I actually felt like I was, it made me too sad. You know, I just, even talking to my kids about them. And that's, that's the biggest grief I carry forward is that my kids won't ever know them. You know, like they, my parents died before they barely met my husband, Kevin. And I just treasure those few very awkward moments (laughs) of Kevin meeting my parents. But the only way my kids are ever going to know my family is if I talk about them. And for so many years, that was so hard. But now on their birthdays, we'll have a cake for them or I'll make sure their pictures on the table. Or I finally, you know, it's funny. I, they're all my family is buried over in Eastern Washington because we lived over there uh, in Colfax when my sister passed away. And so she was buried there and then we buried my parents there. And I've never, you know, in the Christian faith, you're taught that the body is nothing, you know, that it's a shell and that when you die, you know, it, your soul goes away and, and the body is dust. And finally we went over there for my 20 year high school reunion. And I brought my kids to the grave and it was one of the most profound experiences of my grief journey. Just like being there with my kids and, and my family, my parents and my sister, and just feeling like this is the only place on earth that we are physically connected. You know, it was just like, I don't know. It was, it was, it was amazing. Um, yeah. And I, I don't even know what I, why it felt so connecting, but I think there is something about, um, being in that place with, with someone's bones, you know, like in the old Testament, they talk about carrying the bones of their ancestors with them. And I think it's just a reminder that we come from dust Uh, We're made from dust and we return to dust. You know, it's just like this cycle that we have to embrace. It's so, it's so painful. I mean, my, my panic attacks really are, are provoked by this, the, the truth that I will someday not be with my kids, you know, like that is so devastating, but it's true, you know, and how does that change how we live? How does that knowledge of, of death help us to live, live better lives, you know? Mm -hmm. I feel like when I talk to people who've experienced the loss of children, parents, siblings, spouses, they don't want to forget. Like I've heard moms say, like, they don't want to forget, like, that snuggle, you know, when they would, like, snuggle between their ear and their neck or, like you know, a wife who doesn't want to forget her husband's laugh, or there's like these things that you like want to hold on to, but they're slipping away the further time goes by. Is there anything that you feel like helps you to hold on to like pieces of those things that you don't want to forget? Mm, Yeah. It's funny that you, you can see that chair that is in right behind me. That is actually the chair that I came down and sat in the other night. And so when my parents passed away, um, because I was the remaining child, I got all of their stuff. Right. And they were kind of pack rats, but not, I mean, they just had a lot of stuff and they had moved a lot of times because my dad was a pastor and 
a lot of it was still in boxes. So I just had this massive amount of stuff and I was 28 and didn't even, wasn't married yet. And just felt like there was so much stuff I just got rid of because I couldn't, you just can't manage that. Right. And so when we moved into this house, we still had a ton of furniture and we felt like this was going to be where we live now. It's kind of our, our long-term place. And so we started kind of giving away pieces of furniture and I live in a co-housing community. And so we gave a lot of stuff away to just close neighbors. Mm-hmm. And a few months ago, um, my neighbor, Chris sent me a text and said, Hey, Nikki, you know, that chair that you gave us, um, you know, we've used it. It's been the greatest chair, but we're honestly afraid our cats are going to get trapped underneath it. So we're getting rid of it. Uh, do you want it back? And it was a, it's a chair. Like you can see it. It's kind of a, an ugly old stuffed lazy boy kind of chair, like not my visual aesthetic for my house at all. You know, it just <laughs> is, is an old man chair, but it was the chair that my dad basically lived his last months in. And and I, and when Chris sent me that message, I was like, oh no, we don't want that chair. You know, we don't want that. And so he put it out in his front yard and I saw that chair and I just, I couldn't let it go. You know, it's been, I, I gave it to him 10 years ago and it really had forgotten about it. But um, I said, Chris, can you, can I just come and sit in it? Can I just sit in this chair? And when you said, you know, there are things you don't want to forget about about your people. It's like my dad's smell, you know, it's like, I'll never get that. But I sat in that chair and I swear I could still smell him. You know, I swear he was still, there's still, there's probably still some of his DNA in that chair. And I was like, I, I said, Chris, can you just, can we just, can I just sit in it on my porch for a minute? He's like, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll put it on Craigslist or I can take it off Craigslist, whatever. And and we brought it to the porch and immediately my two boys came and snuggled up with me in this chair. And I was just like, we can't get rid of this chair. <laughs> this, this ugly, horrible chair is, is just part of our, part of our house now, you know? And, and uh, yeah. So, you know, it's like people aren't in things, but people are in things, you know, like their memories are, are encapsulated in the things they leave behind. So mm. yeah, that was sort of a long answer, but <laughs> no, it's beautiful. I I think one of the things I love so much is that you invite us in your story of pain, but there's so much beauty that's coming out of it. And, you know, when I think about dust to dust, we're all going to move from dust to dust. Um. I don't know when that will be for me or when that will be for you, but here you are and you're writing this beautiful story of pain and hardship. And yet you're writing it in the hopes to help other people in their pain. And that's so beautiful. When you, this is my last question for you. I know we can chat forever, but when you picture a woman who's steeped in grief and pain and loss, opening up the pages of your book. What do you hope happens because she's read your words and your story? I hope she reaches out. I hope that she, that she finds other people who understand. I think that's been one of the biggest challenges in my journey is that not everybody's going to get it. You know, like I have a great husband who's actually trained in mental health and it's been really hard to engage in my grief with him because he hasn't had any massive losses like I've had. Um, But what you have to realize is that like, you don't wish that on anyone. You don't want someone to have to experience the things you've experienced to be able to understand you but you need to find people who can understand. And, and it's not just, it might not be the people that are closest to you. It might be perfect strangers, but there is such, such an amazing thing that happens in a room full of people. Like I went to a motherless daughters retreat that just changed the way I, I viewed grief and loss. It's just like, you just realize that you're, you're not alone. 
because you can feel so alone. Like I said, because every grief is different, but there's something about just being with people who get it just a little bit more, you know? So I hope, I hope that people will reach out and, and ask where they can find groups to get connected with. You know, it's so easy to just isolate. Um, but with grief, you got to talk about it. You got to be with people who get it. I mean, there's great places in town. There's our treehouse for kids that helps kids that are grieving. Um, there's a lot of great therapists. Willow, you know, a ton of therapists. You've directed me to great people. Um, but just, just talk about it. Don't let yourself be alone. You know, like your grief is sacred and you don't want to share it with just anybody. That's the thing is that it's so sacred that for someone to hear your story and not get it feels hard too. you know, it feels hard in a different way, but you got to find people who, who get it. Mm-hmm. Well, I am so excited for, I know you, you finished up your first draft. So I'm so excited for women to be able to engage your story as they're living theirs. And I know so many will hear this podcast and want to connect with you. So how can they do that? Sure. Yeah. I'm on Instagram at Nikki.lang.studio and my webpage is just NikkiLang.com and I CKI. Um, and I'm on Facebook and yeah, I would love to connect with anyone. Um, over any of anything, anything we talked about today that, that struck you. Yeah. It was, it was fun. We will continue our conversations in walks and hop off this podcast. Thank you for hanging out. And for those of you listening, I hope that you sense that you are beloved, that you are cared for, that wherever you are in your grief journey, God will meet you there and not expect you to be somewhere other than where you are right now. He can sit in the anger, the pain, the denial, all of all of the feels and hold you there. Take care, friends. Keep colliding. We'll catch you next week. Thanks for tuning in. To keep up with us, you can find us on Instagram at we.collide on Facebook as at We Collide Women, and you can also visit our website at wecollide.net to find our blog, resources, event information, and more. One last thing, if you enjoyed this episode, would you take a few seconds and leave us a review? It seems like such a small act, but reviews help us to keep producing this content and help other women find it too. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's episode and letting us walk with you as you seek and collide with Jesus.